So with that, uh, I wanted to start off first of all, just as a reminder, uh, this is the last class of this series um, for both mine and David's class, and uh, I wanted to give you a reminder as to what is coming next week. So uh, in here, in here will be uh, Jack's class, on. It's, it's titled How It All Ends, which is a study of the book of Revelation, uh, and that one will be a, uh, is that 12? That's a twelve week, right? That's right, because we have, yeah. So it'll it's a it'll be a pretty much a full length, you might say, full length class, um, as we haven't traditionally been doing that much this year. But uh, so it'll be a uh, at least twelve, I think maybe thirteen, yeah, because we had to move uh, move some something back. But um, and then in one hundred nine, uh, Tracy will begin a class called How They Did It, which is conversion stories from the Book of Acts and the challenges they faced. And then, um, and I'm not positive on this, but I think there will be a uh, another class right after that, which I believe Tracy's going to cover that one too, uh, which is uh, God Gives the Growth, which is uh, growth struggles and how to overcome them whenever it comes to evangelism and and uh, kind of growing in the church. So uh, those are what's coming. So again, a class in here next, uh, starting next week with Jack over Revelation, and then uh, in 109 with Tracy, which... Uh, over the uh, conversion stories in Acts and how we can learn from those whenever we are going out and trying to help uh, those hear truth and understand God's Word. So, um, that's starting next week. This is our last class. So, we are, as I mentioned last week, uh, my goal is to set some time aside at the end of class for questions or comments or concerns or anything that we, anything we've covered in this class. That uh, and, and so... Uh, I am going to give kind of conclusion to class, and uh, then we'll kind of open the floor. That's my goal. I intentionally cut my notes short, uh, but whenever I was going over my class this morning and I was kind of timing it out, it went the normal length, so I don't, I don't know. Um, uh, it's I think it's a teacher thing. You, you, <laughs> you, you teach inside of a certain time period every day. And so you just you, you just naturally hit that time every day. It's weird, but um, uh, so but let's just be honest. This is going to base entirely on how much I talk. So uh, my goal is is to give some time. Um, but I will say this: I will give you fair warning that if you if we do have time at the end of class and you have comments or questions and everybody just sort of looked at me, I will talk and I will ramble. Okay, so. Um, and let's just be very honest. God is the only one who can say where that will take us. So um, let's. Uh, so if you have any, my my goal is to try to uh, to try to open up as much time as possible at the end of this. Uh, but I do want to kind of wrap us up. So um, so we've come a long way in the last eight weeks. Whenever it comes to uh, looking at Ecclesiastes, and while I intentionally broke this class into a series of activities, life activities that were uh, that, that we, we looked at things we do in life and then the last couple of weeks a few suggestions that uh, that broke them into um, I don't know exactly 10 to 12 suggestions that Ecclesiastes gives us on how we can live fruitfully and, and successfully in this life here on earth uh, the reality is we've been looking at a very in-depth look of Solomon uh, we've been looking at his life very in-depth uh, sometimes we we go back and we look at Solomon and it's like, well, we can see in the Kings and Chronicles and we can look at his life and we understand a little bit. But whenever you take Ecclesiastes, when you take Proverbs, when you take Song of Solomon, you can really learn a lot about Solomon and the depths of his life and who he was. And that's really what we've been doing. 
We've been looking at his experiments with pleasure, with wealth, uh, human wisdom and folly, work, sex, and alcohol, everything, and everything else that he could think of. And after every one of these, he declares them all vanity of vanities, all is vanity. But, you know, Solomon learned some very important lessons in this process that he, he gives to us, and those are part of the suggestions that he gave, especially that life under the sun uh, pretty much offers nothing in and of itself, and that uh, it was a, you know, and that can be a very profound and a very sobering and sometimes even disturbing experience to, to realize that so much of what we do every day has very little meaning to it uh, in the grand scheme of things. So that's kind of where we've been, where we've been moving forward. So we're going to end out in the very end of Ecclesiastes. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes 12 uh, for the majority of this class, pretty much the whole time um, as we are finishing out. So I'm going to read... Uh, the last few verses of this, we're in uh, Ecclesiastes 12, we're going to start in chapter, or excuse me, verse 9, and uh, we'll read to the end of the, or through verse 14, the end of the chapter. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. You know, and as we look at these, these verses don't appear to be written by Solomon. Uh, this is one of the uh, one of the primary reasons why people tend to think that Ecclesiastes as a whole was not written by Solomon. Um, I, I can tell you just from a history standpoint, if you're looking at cultures who have oral histories, this is a very oral history-ish kind of concept to it. It's almost like you can think of the village elder or historian sitting around telling the story of Solomon like he was Solomon, and then he finishes out with a with verses like that where he kind of gives a, uh, a little bit of a life lesson, a little bit of understanding of everything he had just talked about. And so that's one of the reasons why people think that maybe Solomon didn't actually write these words. Again, like we said at the very beginning, it doesn't really matter. But uh, the thing is, these words we just read are not just a commentary on what we've already looked at. There's a lot of lessons in this, and this is kind of where we're going to end. And uh, this is where uh, kind of the title for this last lesson is Parting Truths. Uh, that the, the commentator leaves with us. So uh, we're going to kind of bounce back to the beginning. We're not going to go through every single verse, but we will go through a number of them and uh, <laughs> throw out a few analogies. That uh, And I made it a point to find some of the most controversial ones that I could because uh, you guys know how I like to throw those out there. So uh, starting in verse 9 says, Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people. You know, Solomon, especially in Proverbs, but Solomon spends his life going back, or at least the end of his life, going back and teaching what he had learned, uh, showing uh, everything that uh, he had experienced. He does that. We learn that here in Ecclesiastes. Again, we can see that in Proverbs, uh, Song of Solomon. We can see these examples. And this is just on a side note. This is a really good example as to uh, what we should do if physically you become unable to work for the kingdom as much as you would like to. Maybe it's due to age or illness or injury that you can't do that. Find another way to work. Teach. Write. Do something that involves 
still being able to work for the kingdom. Uh, we, you know, we, we were, a lot of people were in there saying, uh, giving their regards to David as uh, this very, more than likely is going to be his last class. I, mean, I think that is a perfect example of someone who continues to work in the kingdom, even though physically he's not able to get out and do things much anymore uh, in that respect. But he can keep teaching. And so that's a, it's a good example of that. But uh, and as the commentator had talked about, you know, getting out and, and passing on what he learned, he also says that he sought to find words of delight. He looked to write way in a way and that would people would be attracted to, that they would uh, want to read and understand. Uh, Proverbs is a great example of that. Uh, but at the same time, he made sure that he wrote words of truth. And this is kind of where we're going to hit on with this, the idea of words of truth. He, he wasn't looking to offend or upset anyone. However, he did feel the need to tell the truth. And if, if offense was necessary, then that's, that's the way it went. And, uh, you know, this is such a true statement today. We often struggle to speak truth. I think this is, I say today, I think this has been the case for, for thousands of years. We often look to, uh, to talk about truth, but we're so worried that we might say something that is going to offend somebody, or we're going to say something that they're not going to like, or we're going to push them away, that we don't speak truth to them very well, or even at all. Uh, throughout this year, Sunday mornings, Wednesday nights, we've talked about evangelism a lot. And uh, in that time, we, there's been a lot of comments about, you know, kind of two camps. Do you just go to someone and just start speaking the truth very bluntly uh, right, at, right at the beginning? Or do you kind of slow pace your way into this and you, you're very cautious about how you begin conversations? The, in my opinion, my comment on that is there's no right way and there's no wrong way. Now, I know people might have two camps on that and say, well, no, I don't believe, I think there is a wrong way. But you have to understand that those are not necessarily right. There is a right, there's not a right way and a wrong way. There's a comfortable way. What you perceive to be comfortable is often what you perceive to be the right way. And the, the point is, the, really the idea here is speaking truth. And that's what we're going to go back to multiple times. Um, and Jackie may have to remind me, uh, in one of the Wednesday classes we had, uh, there was, I think you read it, it was a story of the guy who walked up to the cashier, I think she had a necklace on, and he, I think we read that, right? Um, and so, uh, and basically, if you weren't there, uh, I'm not going to go through the story, but basically, it was, it was, I mean, you want to talk about just in your face, it was, hey, that's a nice necklace, let me tell you about God. <laughs> I mean, it was pretty much that general idea. And there were two camps on that. Some people were very much like, that was, he should not have done that. That was inappropriate. He should not go that way. Again, the point to all of this is that we need to acknowledge that all of this is about speaking truth. Not about whether we are worried about whether we do it the right way or the wrong way up front. The thing is, it's not really about the, whether we're comfortable or whether we think they're going to be comfortable, it's about speaking truth. If you go back to, uh, again, some people are going to say there'd be more of a soft touch uh, on those kind of things, and they need more encouragement. I go back to the idea of what is comfortable for you. That's often where we fall in that category is to this. And it's really not supposed to be about you. It's not what we're comfortable with. It's what they need. And there are definitely positive and negatives on both sides of that. I've spent many years in education, and that's one of the things that we hear a lot of in conferences where people will come in and they will tell us the absolute best way to teach. 
If you will just do it this way, every kid will learn 100%. Okay? Um, and it's, there's always five years. It's always five years. Any educators will tell you that. It's always five years. If you will just do this for five years, at the end of five years, every kid will be 100% on every score they make. It's always five years. Not sure what happens in five years, but uh, we've been doing that now for decades. The five years have come and gone multiple times. Hasn't really happened. But the point is, is that everybody has an opinion as to what works. It doesn't mean there's a right way and a wrong way. It really comes down to what works for you and what works in the situation. And, uh, and the, but the point is always coming back to the same thing. It's always about truth. It's always about truth. However we're getting that out there, it's always about truth. Um, if you would like to expand on that more, if we want to bring that up at the end of class, we can. Um, but uh, we need to move on. Otherwise, I will keep going and going. So, uh, as it moves on, in verse 11, beginning of this, he says, The words of the wise are like goats, and like males, firmly fixed, are the collected sayings. Uh, you know, these don't, and this is going to tie in to what we just read, what we just looked at. These don't give suggestion of comfortable things. They don't give suggestions of things that are easy or things that are uh, simple to talk about. They give suggestions of things that are irritating to us, irritating to other people who are struggling in sin. And uh, it's it, the idea of pushing people along, goading them, pushing them to uh, honestly just speaking truth to them or on these teaching memory, hitting these words and these phrases and these ideas that people just need to remember, you know, the nailing them to their memory. These are things that are kind of gives us views of these stern classrooms where everybody sits there and no, they don't move, or these rote memory lessons where we're just going over one over the other. And you may think, well, those aren't really effective. But the problem is these are things that are necessary. We have to be able to sit down and actually talk on things and goad people forward to understand what truth is. We need to make sure that they have in their minds what that truth is, and they remember it. You know, think back to the comments that I was talking about earlier about talking to people. Uh, along with that kind of controversy is which way is the best way, we also need to understand that teaching this truth is not always going to be happy, entertaining, and joyful experiences. People need to hear truth, and they are going to, a lot of times they're not going to like it. And that's, unfortunately, that is part of what goes with it. And eventually, that truth is going to come out. And it can be irritating to people. Uh, a line that I got from one of the authors that I was reading, I thought like this, that anyone who wishes to learn to live successfully must learn to face truth, regardless of how unpleasant it might be, or acknowledge that, that reality. It's important that no matter how we are doing things, no matter how we are presenting things to people, we have that in mind, is that this really is all about truth. So I'm going to, uh, I want to use another analogy, and um, uh, before I do this, use this analogy, I just understand I have no, uh, I'm not going to be expressing what my opinion is on this, okay? So, um, but like I said, I like to use the controversy. So we're going to talk very quickly, the, the Benefits, uh, the positive negatives of public school versus homeschool versus private school, okay? So, for those of you that know, that is a very controversial topic among a lot of people. Uh, so, uh, but I want to use this because this is a really good analogy to understand the ideas of speaking truth, of speaking the truth, and most importantly, the battleground that the world that we are sentenced to live in is, 
what that can mean to us. All right, so let me explain. Like I said, I'm not going to try to say I think this one's better, this one's not. That's not what this is about. This is kind of giving you variations that you can look at and understand. So this is what this is what I mean. Public school. Let's take that. Public school does not is not going to teach children the in-depth academic concept of scripture. They're just not. That's not what they do. They, they are, that is something that uh, they either completely and totally push away, shy away from, uh, all different levels of that, but they're not going to teach kids the academics of either scripture or of truth. That's just not what they do. Okay? And honestly, they really have never done that, at least not on any kind of real level. What public schools do offer, though, is a very, very good battleground for kids. Their ability to be able to hone their skills in a battlefield that they then have the ability to come home and debrief with you as parents or grandparents, as family. The key is, while they're not getting the academic stuff at school, they should be getting it at home. And as parents are able to teach that academic stuff, that academic idea of scripture and truth, they can then go into school with the guidance of their parents and they can actually work on honing those skills of being able to defend themselves or maybe even talk to other people. Something that they are going to do. That's one of the big issues that we have right now, especially in education, is the idea of this bubble mentality. When I say bubble, I don't mean protecting, but I mean we almost kind of forget that whenever kids turn 18 and they graduate, that they actually go into the real world. That they don't just sit in a school level their whole rest of their lives. Eventually, they're going to be 35. And guess what? They're going to be living in that battlefield. And the more they can test and hone and go over those skills, all right, the, the better they might be able to survive as they move out on a spiritual level. On the flip side of that, you have homeschooling. Homeschooling has the ability to teach academics absolutely in depth. Kids that come out of the other end of a homeschool setting have the ability to truly understand so much scripture and so much truth in depth on an academic level. They can probably just quote it, spout it. They can do anything they want with it. But on the flip side, kind of the opposite of a public school, they don't often get a lot of opportunities to test those skills. They have, it's all academic, but they don't actually get to test them. My sister homeschooled all of her kids. She has expressed that to me multiple times. That, that was her biggest fear was when her kids leave the house and they go out, are they actually going to be prepared to be able to defend themselves? They know it, but can they actually do it? Two different things. So basically, both sides have very good positives and also very good negatives to on both sides of that coin. In the middle, you have private schools. Some people might say, well, there you go. There's your perfect example. The reality is, is that it, private schools often hit a very moderate level on both. You don't really get real in-depth academics. You don't get real in-depth battlefield training. But you do get a moderate level of both of them. The point is, is that all three have very, very good ways to be able to teach truth for your kids. The key is, and there's one very simple, hold on, there's one very simple um, connection with all three. There's one very simple idea that is all three have absolutely in common family. It's all about family. It's not about the school. It's not about the way you do it. It's about family. The, if each one of them can be very successful in their own rights, 
if family is the one who starts the process. That's really what it comes down to. So it's all about our ability to, the, and that's really the key word, the ability to do what we need to do. Todd. All three of them have the same disadvantage and or advantage. It depends on the teachers. You can have a terrible teacher. You can be a parent that's homeschooling, but you really aren't doing it very well. Or you could be private school and or public school and be a terrible teacher or a fantastic teacher. So, again, the, I agree with you. The, uh, I, again, the, the central connection with all of them is parent. It's the it's the it's the I parent. Like it's the it's and you have to understand that. And, and I, I will say this that I don't think that you have to be a an amazing homeschool parent to be able to be able to teach your kids the academics and the truths that you need in Scripture. I mean, with the with the connection with the church and the family of the church and your whole family can definitely be done. And and I think that's vice versa also with public school too. Uh, that you can you can definitely you're really what it comes down to is your communication. With your kids, your family communication with kids, your ability to have open dialogue, and your ability to help them understand that you are the person to come and talk to when they need support. You know, the, the point to this is that the Bible tries to get us to face realities. You know, uh, the, uh, there's a quote here that says, uh, We are not taking full advantage of the wisdom found in Scripture until we face realities. The, the Bible speaks the reality of sin. It talks about, it speaks of the need for genuine repentance. It speaks for that truth can only find forgiveness and peace through Christ. We know this. These are things that can be difficult. They can be irritating to someone who is not living in that way. That is a reason why a lot of people don't want to talk to us is because they know what we're about to say. And they don't want to hear that. And that is, it can be a difficult thing. It can be unpleasant. To acknowledge that we're lost in sin with Christ, but there is no wisdom in refusing that truth, and uh, that's what we need to try to push for. You know, we not, not only must we all face this truth, but we need to do something about it. We need to make sure that we are understanding these uh, that that we have to turn to Christ and His Word, and that's why the, the, we, I, I use this analogy: the three types of schooling. My point to all that really is that. We need to, as, as families, as the church, we need to be teaching kids all three of those. And we're going to expand on that more in a second. We need to be teaching all three of those ideas of teaching truth, teaching the academic, teaching those things, but also helping them hone their skills because eventually they're going to be in the real world whether we like it or not. And they are going to have to, they're going to need those skills to be able to, to move forward. At uh, the end of verse 11, uh, when it talks about nails firmly fixed to the collected saying, it said they are given by one Shepherd. This is a reference to the entire word of God that uh, the commentator goes on to admonish the reader. He says, my son, beware of anything beyond these. There's no end to the production of human wisdom. It just, you know, human wisdom seems to just keep going and going and going and going and never really ends on that. And uh, in other words, you know, don't believe everything you read. You know, it doesn't say don't read. It just says don't believe everything that you read. Be under, understand where the real truth is. You know, and he does go on to say, of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. And, you know, there is, this is more than a commentary on reading and just studying. This is about putting that stuff to action. Putting the, what you learn, actually putting it uh, to the test. Uh, we've, we've all talked to or experienced people who, they spend their entire lives studying on various philosophies and truths, interpretations of the Bible, but they never actually do anything with it. 
they're very, very knowledgeable, but they never actually put it into, into work, into effect. And uh, the danger, there, there's a danger there that lies in, in seeking and finding and knowing truth, but never actually acting on it. Again, think back to the, the analogies I gave with the schools. All right, you have, if you have homeschool where you're very, very active in, in, the, in the academic side of it, but if you never actually hone those skills, you never put it to the test, right? That's a danger. If you're in public school and you just send your kids to public school and they have no preparation, right? That is very, very dangerous, right? And private school is not much different. They're going to experience both levels of those. They have to be prepared at home before they ever go into those things. Um, you hear this quote that I read. This is uh, on this topic. I like this. It said, if you continue your study of the word of God, you will learn about his son, Jesus. Then it will be necessary to commit yourself to him, to confess him, to be baptized in union with him, to live with and for him. If not, all your study, even of scripture, will be nothing more than a weariness of flesh. It's important that we understand and, and I'll talk about this more in a second, but it, this is where we can get back into the idea of, uh, I talked about a few weeks ago, about uh, we worry too much about entertaining for our kids, that everything needs to be an entertainment to them. If everything is entertainment to them, we're not, t- we're not testing them on what's really going to be there. We all know we're all adults. We all know that the world is not an entertaining place all the time. And if that is how we are moving forward with our kids, that we are not teaching them that uh, those battle skills that they will need as they move forward. So I apologize. I know I'm going quick through this, but I was I really wanted to give you guys some time to talk if you would like. Um, at the very end of this, we get to the uh, the close of the writings. This is where uh, the the uh, probably one of the the, the most profound statements. They're in Ecclesiastes at the very end. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty. Of man, we already talked about this a little bit a couple weeks ago. But uh, to fear God is to realize God's unchanging power and justice. It's the fearing God is the most basic of all religious inclinations. You know, as we read a couple weeks ago, Solomon talks about it frequently in Ecclesiastes and other places. Uh, it's there a lot, and this, however, seems to be a concept that a lot of people struggle with. It's a concept that we almost are like we're we're allergic to it. And this is definitely where we get the concept of the, the Old Testament God of wrath versus the New Testament God of, of love, and that they, these aren't the same person. But in reality, the New Testament retains the idea of fear, but it adds something significant to it. 1 John 4.18 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. See, we must advance our relationship with God beyond fear into love, and that way it can become mature. Uh, fear can't be the sole basis of our knowledge of God. Uh, I have in my Bible, uh, on I don't remember exactly what verse I have it written under, but where it basically says fear can be overcome, but love lasts forever. If you are scared of something, eventually you can convince yourself it's not that big of a deal. And you can overcome that fear. right? But love is not the same way. Love lasts forever. Note, though, the scripture very clearly says the fear is the beginning of what, and this is what the commentator is emphasizing here. Fear is the beginning of this. Even Paul said, who, who talked a lot on God's love and on his grace, he says we must cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. 
You know, we must always have fear of not being what God wants us to be. All right, we should be worried. We should have that anxiety of, of uh, that we're not doing what God asks us to do. And keep these words in mind. This is out of 2 Corinthians 5. So if we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. We teach truth based on that. The second half of this principle leads very clearly into the natural consequence of genuinely fearing God. And this is, to put it bluntly, uh, a, a quote here is, a relationship with God that does not include obedience to his will does not exist. You know, if we believe that God has spoken, that he commands and instructs us, then obedience must logically and naturally follow that. You know, we um, next, at the very end of that, we read in the end of verse 14, For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. You know, God holds us responsible for how we live. Uh, he, he knows everything we have ever done or thought, good or bad. That can be a, a sobering thought, but it can also, and this is where we the difficulties come in whenever it comes to talking to people, because they often will already know that, or as we start to explain that to them, it becomes very, very uh, scary to think that God knows everything that we have done in our whole lives, and everything we have thought in our whole lives. And that becomes a very scary thing, and that's why a lot of people get very um, anxious whenever you're trying to talk to them about that, because they understand this. But it also can be a comfort, and this is a good way to talk to people, because you have, it means that we have a God who cares. Uh, my first, either first or second year coaching here in Middell, I think it was my first year, uh, it was a summer practice and, uh, you know, it was very hot and we're outside and uh, there was, we were trying to run a play, there was a kid on the end who just, bless his heart, he could not get that play, he just could not remember what to do, could not remember what to do and eventually coach on the other side of the field just is yelling him across the field to, you know, as good coaches do, figure it out, Okay. Well, as I am walking by, I look over, and this kid is just just weeping. I think this was a seventh grader, maybe. And uh, just weeping. Well, another coach walks over to him, and he said something that I never forgot. And I actually used myself quite a bit. He said, let me tell you a secret. He said, do you know why you should never be upset when a coach yells at you? Kid just smell why. He said, because if a coach yells at you, that means the coach cares. It means the coach sees in you something that you can help the team with that you're going to have a talent, you have an ability, you can help the whole team be better, and that he knows that if he stays on you, he is going to make you a better player, and you're going to be more successful with the team. What you should be worried about is if the coach stops talking to you, because that means the coach thinks you gave up, and so he gave up. The kid kind of looked at him, and he said, did you give up? He said, no. You know, head to helmet shaking, everything. He said, well, get back in there. Let's go do it again. It's a really good point. It's a really good analogy. It can be nerve-wracking. It can be scary to think about that God knows everything we do, but it also can be very comforting the fact that to know that he cares. This would be a very scary place if God didn't care. The, his, it's, a, it's a common argument among Christians versus atheists when they talk about uh, Christians will come in and say, 
you know, I think I used this to talk about this the other day, but Christians will come in and say, you know, why are you even here? Why do you even care? Why do you care that you're even here? If, there, if there's no morality, if there's just everything is just chance and, and everything is just out in the middle of nowhere, then then why, do, why are you even here to talk to us? Why do you even care what's happening? And you think about, that is a very scary concept. God, his judgment places order, it places purpose, it gives us a purpose for being here. And our purpose is to love and serve God. That's, that's the whole premise of why we're here. And the fact that he does care is what gives us comfort. It can be nerve-wracking and scary, especially at first. But after a while, you start to realize that his love does matter. And so I want to conclude just a few lines here. And this is going to be a few lines from an author that I've been using as a reference, and I really like this. And so we'll, we'll close out with this. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Is life all vanity? Only under the sun, only if you attempt to live it without God. God offers something far better than the vanity of human existence. He offers life, hope, forgiveness, guidance, and purpose to those who fear him and keep his commandments. So, I appreciate all your time with this class. We're not quite done. I, again, I wanted to open it up to you guys if you have any comments or questions. If you don't, remember, I will start rambling. So, um, but uh, I'm a true teacher. I don't like silence. So, um, but uh, if you, uh, but I do appreciate all your time. I appreciate your comments. I hope you're able to get something out of this class and be able to take it with you. And I hope that, uh, that we can remember that our ultimate goal, while everything else does have not, does not have a lot of meaning to it in the activities of this world and the activities of our lives. We do have one very singular focus. Love God and keep his commandments. And what are his commandments? To spread his word, to expand his kingdom, spread, and spread his love for the world around us. So hopefully, uh, hopefully that is something we can take with us and be able to use in our work in this world. So, so... Well, somebody's got a toddy, hook me up. Something funny about Solomon, who whether he wrote this or not, I find it sort of interesting. He was uh, given wisdom, correct? Mm-hmm. Uh, was it taken away when he started going against God? So he knew... Not that we're aware of. Yeah, so he knew what he was doing wrong, but he was still doing it wrong. I've always found that sort of interesting. And he knew what was going to happen to him. It is an interesting look. Um... I will say this, and while he definitely knew, yeah. uh, because he, I mean, he grew up and he, I mean, son of David, he, he knew all this. But I will say this, I, wisdom does not necessarily mean that you know truth. Um, it just having wisdom in scripture does, but just someone who is, has a lot of wisdom doesn't necessarily mean truth. Now, in Solomon's case, you're absolutely right. He absolutely did. He knew exactly what he was supposed to be doing, and, and he just didn't anyways, and that's what makes reading Ecclesiastes so interesting is because you really get this, I mean, because we know who he was, we know how he acted and how he did things, and again, in Chronicles, Kings and stuff, we know that, but if you really take a deep look at Ecclesiastes, you can really see just how far he went, and uh, and you, it's, it's sobering, honestly, to realize how far he actually went down that hole, so, Absolutely. I like the concept. He calls himself the preacher uh, as the king of Israel, the most successful, the richest, uh, most powerful, the one who kept peace with nations around him. Uh, best, uh, he is pictured as the epitome 
of the, the kingdom of Israel and its influence in that part of the world. But he still, at the end of his life, is still looking to see what uh, what truth is and what wisdom is. And uh, he looks back and he sees some of his faults and he, he sees the times when he felt like he was accomplishing things through doing good or pleasure or being more wealthy or building cities uh, or all of these things. But he considers himself because of the wisdom God gave him. He considers himself somebody who can try to understand things better. I think, and I think he did um, understand things better because of that extensive wisdom that he had. Um, but yes, and it is, it is such a, I had never really looked at Solomon as closely as I have with this class, just in who he really was and what he was really able to accomplish, but then also really able to, again, to so that, that rabbit hole, that, those holes that he went down, what he was really able to, uh, to, to do. And, uh, it's, it's an interesting study. If you, um, I, I spent quite a bit of time just reading through different Proverbs and stuff. And you, if you tie these two together, it, it makes a, um, it makes a really interesting comparison as to what he's, what is coming out of Ecclesiastes and then. And then what is also, I mean, you can really see the level of wisdom that he had, but also that even that level of wisdom does not solve the problems of temptation and what this world can do. And I think that's really the most sobering piece of all this, that no matter, we are never at a point where it's like, well, I, I just know better now and I will never, I will never be worried, I never have to worry about doing that again. I'll never have to worry about that temptation again because I'm, I'm just, I'm older now, I'm wiser now, I just know better. Solomon proves that, that that is absolutely not the case. And that it does not take much uh, to go down uh, the wrong the wrong path for sure. I know God granted Solomon wisdom, but can't we look at it as Ecclesiastes as the way of him talking about how he got that wisdom from God? I mean, it wasn't just, boom, you have it. God said, I will make you the wisest. Right, I would grant you wisdom, but it didn't just say boom. How you get wisdom is learning experiences, and I just um, that's a, a little twist. That's a, yeah, that's, a, a, that's an interesting and, twist. I had not, I had not thought of that. I, mean, I think Tracy has a uh, response to that or a comment, anyways. So I, I think that there's a, a certain measure of wisdom that Solomon had before he ever even said the prayer, or else his prayer may not have been what it was. When he said, God grant me wisdom so that I can rule over your people justly and all that, that was a wiser prayer than one, help God help me build a great kingdom, help me become a great man. So there was already a measure of wisdom there that might have set him apart from others. That may have come through watching his experiences of learning through observing his father. And all of the struggles that David's dysfunctional family, a man after God's own heart, had a, one of the most dysfunctional families in the Bible. you know, And he gained wisdom from looking at that, potentially. And then, God, I do believe God blessed him with wisdom from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that, that was given to him. And then, as David pointed out, I think there was a gaining of wisdom through... Uh, difficulties and bad decisions and good decisions that, that continue to build on that wisdom as he went through his life. Yeah, if you've ever um, if you ever met someone who uh, you ever heard you ever heard the statement wise beyond their years, uh, you ever heard that. And often what that means is is that someone who just has a 
they have they seem to have a high level of discernment. They they have the ability to to be able to make decisions that seem beyond what a you know usually it's somebody who's over here who's experienced a lot, but they just seem to make good decisions on things and uh, it, because they can kind of discern the, the the goods and the bads earlier than other people can. Um, and and I think we're probably seeing some level of that where he was. He was blessed, because I do agree, I think uh, he definitely gained a lot of wisdom in his life. I think Ecclesiastes shows that, but I also think that he was uh, either already had, um, to some extent, and then blessed with this idea of uh, his ability to discern. One of the examples of his wisdom was uh, when the two, the two women came in with the, with the child. That, that is an example of something that he, he was blessed with a, uh, I mean, that was, that was pointed out to us to show his wisdom. So that was something that I think God blessed him with, his ability to be able to make decisions like that that most people wouldn't have necessarily been able to do until years later after having seen a lot more things in their life. Um, so I think, I think wisdom is a complex, is definitely a complex issue for sure. Um, well, I think a couple of ways to look at it is somebody that's wise, thinking about what Tracy said, you know, Solomon growing up David, seeing all of his examples and stuff, and, and knowing a base of God from that, I mean, I'm, we have the Bible today. Somebody that grows up learning the Bible, I think, has a different level of discernment or a different way of looking at the aspect of the way to make a decision that people think is wise. Just because somebody makes a decision that I don't think is wise doesn't mean, it, you know. Right. But <laughs> I, I think that's the difference in the abilities as well. I, you, you, you know, I, that's a really good point. I, you're right. Um, as we teach our children... As they're growing up, we're teaching them truth through Scripture, and and that is a wisdom that we hope that they will they will be able to take with them as they move into the the world. You're absolutely right. Uh, Solomon did not have like what we have in Scripture, and so his was based on his experiences with his father, based on experiences being in Israel. But then also uh, maybe that was what a, a piece of what God blessed him with was a a, a truth that most people would not have had because would not have had the ability to to go back and read it in scripture that makes sense um that we can do today uh, maybe that's a that's a piece of that so but you did not tell me beforehand but <laughs> please 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 i'm just kidding the, the thing that i tend to go back to when we talk about wisdom is the adam and eve and the serpent the tree that desire to make one wise we need to remember that mm-hmm Forgetting that, to me, trumps all of this. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, Don was saying that uh, it really, this does, and I think it's a very, very good point, goes back to the idea of Adam and Eve and the tree that would grant wisdom. At least that's what was, that was, told, that's what was told to them. This will grant you wisdom. It will grant you the understanding of, of right and wrong and life and death. And, and uh, that was, that's what this will give you. And uh, that, so that's a very important point to go back and remember that that's what the temptation was after that. Wes, did you have a point? Solomon is presented as someone who wanted to do the wisest and best things for the right reason to lead the people of his father and his father's God. Patriarchal age is the time when God spoke to the fathers and the family learned from them. We see David, and then at the end, one of the summaries is he was a man after God's own heart. He kept learning to be more and more what God wanted him to be. Whenever he appointed Solomon 
to be the king after him. He was doing what he thought God wanted uh, Solomon to be, and Solomon became a great king. When we see Proverbs, we see during his life things that he sees that are important, and he thinks of himself as a teacher, and he writes those things down. He says for his son, but for all of those under him who would see him as a teacher, not just a king, not just someone who didn't get in wars with all of the nations around him, but as one who does it through his wisdom uh, and makes a greater and greater and richer and richer kingdom. Uh, the, Israel, the, the nation of Israel starts going downhill immediately after Solomon dies. When they're separated, they're never that great again. And they were a great empire like Rome was and like Greece was in the place where they were at the time where they were. They were, uh, as, uh, as Jack's always telling us, they were showing what God had wanted people to see as what could be if, if, if people followed after him. And Solomon uh, Solomon built the temple because he wasn't He didn't have to go to war all the time like his father had. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I appreciate your comments. I appreciate all of your thoughts. I hope you guys have a wonderful Lord's Day. And just a reminder again, we'll have Jack's class in here and then Tracy's class in 109 starting next week. Have a wonderful, wonderful day. Thank you,